This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the Gem State. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare of you and me. Today's episode features a presentation by Allison Smith, addiction medicine physician and family physician, and the director of mental health at Delta Airlines, on the topic of postpartum considerations, substance use disorder treatment, recovery, and parenting. This lecture was recorded live on July 28, 2021, as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. Here to introduce today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Welcome to Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorder. My name is Lachelle Smith. We're very pleased to have a talk by Dr. Allison Smith on postpartum considerations. All right, Allison, will you introduce yourself and you can take the floor. I'm Allison Smith. I am a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist in Boise. It's great to be here today talking about postpartum considerations, substance use treatment, recovery, and parenting. So objectives today, I'm going to talk about disparity in substance use treatment, looking at some of the challenges that new parents face and discuss an approach to postpartum care and review some resources. So it's really clear that we have a long way to go to improve the treatment of substance use disorders overall, but I want to highlight that for certain populations, this struggle is much greater. Black and Latinx people with opioid use disorder are less likely to be treated. Um, Access to life-saving buprenorphine is constrained nationwide. We know that there aren't enough prescribers. We know that geography is limiting as far as who gets care, but For those who do get treatment, it's overwhelmingly white people. Um, 12.7 million out of 13.4 million visits resulting in a prescription for Suboxone were white patients, um, making them 35 times more likely to receive evidence-based care. And this is occurring in spite of the fact that overdose deaths are rising faster for black patients than for white patients. There's also inequality in the punishment around substance use disorders. So um, we've heard a lot of these statistics before, but at at 5% of the world's population, the U.S. holds 25% of all prisoners. And nearly 80% of federal and 60% of state prison populations for drug offenses are Black or Latinx people. These higher incarceration rates are not reflective of more drug use within those populations, but of our legal system and law enforcement targeting these communities of color. Prosecutors are two times more likely to pursue a mandatory minimum sentence for a Black person as for a white person charged with the exact same offense. And what this has resulted in is this really high rates within these populations of incarcerated people. So one in nine Black children experiences an incarcerated parent compared to one in 28 Latinx children and one in 57 white children. So you just think about the life that that creates for these children growing up in the society. 
And communities really heal when opioid use disorder is treated as a condition rather than a crime. The very definition of addiction is to use compulsively despite negative consequences. And so that means that basically it is resistant to punishment by its very definition. And yet we continue to implement punishment as our primary approach to addressing it. know that there's disparity for these populations, um, but I know I was brought here today to talk about disparity for uh, for women's in particular and talk about postpartum considerations, but I just wanted to kind of set the tone here. Um, as far as for women, females with substance use disorders are more likely to have experienced trauma, sexual assault, chronic pain, and mental health diagnoses than their counterparts in males. So knowing that the cards are stacked against females who are experiencing the same condition because of these co-occurrences, that's a good perspective to start with when thinking about treatment for substance use disorders in, in the female population. And some of this is related to where this all begins. Women receive 65% of all opioids prescribed in this country. So if you are a female accessing care and looking for treatment for chronic pain, you're much more likely to be given an opioid. And we know that that doesn't always lead to a substance use disorder, but it is a common pathway. And prescription opioid overdose deaths in women increased dramatically between 1999 and 2015. They increased for everybody um, in that time frame, but for women, it was 471% that they increased and for men, 218%. And heroin deaths among women are increasing two times faster than for men. And what's really staggering is that in the exact same situation with an overdose, women are three times less likely than a man to receive naloxone um, from an emergency response after an opioid overdose. Um, you know, you think about stigma and, and the way that people might respond to something like an overdose and to see that women are less likely to be, to be rescued and saved um, is really astounding. And then it's that much harder if you're pregnant. Um, increasingly, females with use disorders are pregnant. The number of women with opioid use disorder at delivery more than quadrupled between 1999 and 2015. Um, and unfortunately, it's much harder to receive care if you are a pregnant woman. Nationally, only 13% of outpatient and inpatient treatment centers and only 7% of hospital-based programs ex even accept women who are pregnant or postpartum. It's also hard to receive care because you're discouraged from seeking care. Women are stigmatized and judged and even criminally punished. In 23 states, including Washington, D.C., that's considered child abuse uh, to be using substances during pregnancy. And uh, some states go even further, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Wisconsin consider it grounds for involuntary commitment. And once this is this has occurred, um, it's, you know, poor outcomes for children as well, because more than half of children in foster care are there for parental substance use. So it's often the result of coming to, to seek care results in these children being placed in foster care and separated from parents. And what's difficult, I think, is that postpartum is already really hard. Um, so you take a, a, you know, a woman who has never experienced substance use disorder and put her in the postpartum phase. She's dealing with the trauma of her delivery. We've talked about this, that for a lot of women, delivery itself is, is traumatic. There's often a mismatch in expectations. People who go into pregnancy and delivery thinking that like this baby's going to fix their marriage or you know, make them a better person. 
they'll be healthier or whatever. There's already, you know, in, in a average population, this is a common thing. There's pain postpartum, there's sleep deprivation postpartum, there's mom guilt and all the insecurities that come along with it. Financial strain of having another mouth to feed and breastfeeding and all of the layers of stress and difficulties that are present around breastfeeding and feeding in general. And so, you know, it's already a hard phase. Now add in the fact that somebody with a substance use disorder is facing all of these things. It can be a really, really difficult situation. So what does that mean? In our current state, 80% of postpartum women return to use. And that's it's, I think, an unacceptable number and a place that we actually have a great opportunity. And the important thing that I think to highlight here is that we have an opportunity not only to help that postpartum woman, but also to change the narrative for generations to come. This is a generational disease. If we can help a woman who's postpartum not return to use, you know, help her to be successful in her recovery, we have the opportunity to help that child and her family around her and thinking about the generations that that will affect. So this is a big opportunity here for improvement. So how do we set people up for success postpartum? There's a couple of things that we know, and they're actually really simple things that we probably are, a lot of us are already doing, um, but there's real data behind it. So encouraging infant bonding is really critical. Studies have shown that early mother-infant bonding is a better indicator of bonding at 12 months than maternal health, mental health, or substance use are. So where these are detractors, having you know mental health issues or substance use would normally indicate that bonding at 12 months is not going to be very strong, that we can overcome all of that by seeing this early mother-infant bonding. And this is a big challenge because often women who are admitted to the hospital with substance use and deliver a baby, there's often a separation that occurs, you know, whether that's a baby going to the NICU or, you know, foster care coming into play through Child Protective Services. There's all kinds of things that often are occurring at the same time, but where the pairing is safe and can happen and we can keep mothers and babies together, building out that bonding is really critical and probably can actually overcome that detractor of substance use at that 12-month mark. Lactation is another critical piece of this. We know that for a baby that's experiencing some opioid withdrawal, that nursing and feeding are already challenging. So those moms probably need a lot of extra support. And it's not a reason to say like, this can't happen or it's not going to work, but really a, a time to to rally the troops and bring on more support and as much as possible, really encourage that lactation, whether it's pumping or whatever it's going to take to help support that because that bonding that comes from lactation is critical, but also it's a motivator for moms in recovery. And we've seen lower neonatal abstinence scores and shorter hospital stays for babies for whom that lactation support is there and that, that that's more successful. Pain control, I know we've talked a lot about this as well, but you know, appropriately managing pain is really critical for that type of delivery. So if you have an operative delivery, if you've had a C-section and normally you're giving some opioids postpartum, that's still the case. So don't exclude somebody from that kind of treatment just based on the fact that they have a substance use disorder. Know that they may require slightly higher doses of opioids postpartum, but not necessarily a longer duration in any way, but don't shy away from treating pain 
pain. If there is pain and it's not treated, if women feel that we're judging them or stigmatizing them or keeping them in a certain category and not treating that pain, often there's this division that starts to build between the patient and the healthcare system and this mistrust and pain can be a real trigger for returning to use. So um, so just keep that in mind. And then um, just a plug at the end here for a long acting reversible contraceptives immediately postpartum. So, uh, you know, patients who are experiencing substance use disorders sometimes fall into a category, a population of people who, you know, maybe transient or have trouble with transportation, getting to a postpartum visit, you know, six weeks after delivery might not happen for them. So as much as you can, you know, a, a depot shot in the hospital or placing an IUD um, immediately postpartum, all of those things go a really long way for helping people to be successful in spacing pregnancies and having that ability to choose when the next pregnancy will occur. Postpartum medication, so thinking about medication-assisted um, treatment, so buprenorphine or methadone, um, don't stop at postpartum. Um, and those pressures that come, you know, that to stop the medication come from a lot of different places. Um, you'll hear it come from the mom herself. It might come from Child Protective Services or um, DHS. So, you know, there's often certain criteria that women need to have in place to be able to get their child back from Child Protective Services. And sometimes it's a statement like, you know, we want you to be off of medication. So, yeah, it is rare. I think that like a Child Protective Services will mandate that, you know, somebody is on a certain kind of treatment. But I have experienced it quite frequently, especially with methadone, where parents are being told that they need to be off methadone to be able to get their kid back and they'll wean kind of not by their choice. And it's, it's a tough situation. And um, sometimes it's insurance for a long time in Idaho until very recently with Medicaid expansion, you know, Medicaid services for pregnant women was cut off six weeks postpartum. So, um, you know, they could no longer afford Suboxone. So there's all kinds of pressures to stop MAT postpartum. And um, what I think is really important is that we as clinicians, we as care providers, social workers, nurses, all the people involved in these patients' care have a say. We can really make a difference and we can help people to reframe the way that child protective services caseworker might be thinking about this, reframe the way that the new mom might be thinking about this stressful time and, you know, recognizing that these medications are life-saving and critical and that, you know, being at home with a new baby, it's really not the time to make a big adjustment and to risk recovery in, um, in stopping medication. People often ask me about, you know, sometimes in pregnancy, doses are increased. This is really common for methadone, for example, where people end up needing split dosing and higher doses because of that high circulating volume because of the metabolism. And it happens with Suboxone as well. Uh, moms needing a slightly higher dose during pregnancy. There's nobody to say that you have to just get that dose down because it's important to get, get the dose down. But really, I let moms help me to guide that transition back down to their previous dose or dose that feels more comfortable for them. And they usually report to me you know, that they're feeling more tired on the 24 milligrams than they did on 16, and then we'll start to back it down. But there's no hard and fast rule that, that as soon as the baby is out that you need to lower that dose back down. So just keep in mind that moms and our patients are really good at telling us what they need and, and what's going to make them as successful as possible. And so I, I leave it to them to help guide that process. So what resources do we have? Um, people are our biggest resource. Using non-judgmental language, advocating for our patients, we can make a really big difference. Um, this quote here is 
really um, wonderful, unbiased, empathetic nurses are well positioned to strongly advocate and intervene on behalf of women with substance use disorder, which in turn will help to create positive outcomes for mother and her baby. So just being our patient's advocates, trusting our patients, making sure that we're treating them respectfully makes a really, really big difference in somebody's success and their willingness to believe that they're worth it and that seeking treatment is not them doing bad or that we believe that they've made this terrible moral failing and this this awful choice, but that we are treating it like we would any other chronic condition. And as medical professionals, we're here to help and treat. We've got several resources available to us. We've talked in the past a little bit about this Postpartum Support International, postpartum.net. There's a 1-800 number that's available 24-7. It's kind of geared towards clinicians, but is has a lot of content that's also specific towards the mom, including support groups. So um, a really helpful resource for people for postpartum moms with substance use disorders. Nurse Family Partnership for the locations in Idaho, they've expanded. Now Canyon, Kootenai, Shoshone, they're, they're in a bunch of counties all throughout Idaho, and they can do nurse home visits for low-income families pregnant with their first child. So a really, really important resource for education and learning and resources. There's also Friends of Children and Families that provide Head Start and Early Head Start for zero to five-year-olds, which is free preschool and support services for children to get help them get access to medical, dental, social supports, and they're available in Boise and Meridian. And then I wanted to highlight this other website, the Office-Based Addiction Treatment training and technical assistance. It's through the um, through Boston Medical, and their website contains just a wealth of information um, to help clinicians in supporting caring for pregnant and postpartum patients with substance use disorders. There's videos, there's live webinars, and there's resources. And again, they also have stuff that's geared directly toward the patient. So you can check out their website. So just to review these key points, substance use disorders don't discriminate, and unfortunately, our society does. So really paying attention to these populations that have been historically excluded from care or receive subpar care, and that includes pregnant and postpartum women. If nothing changes for pregnant women seeking care for their treatment for substance use disorders, more than 80% of them will return to use postpartum, and that's a pretty grim number. So us being that change that we want to see, being the advocate and continuing excellent evidence-based care for people makes a really big difference for those generations to come. Thank you guys very much. Thank you so much. What questions, thoughts, or reflections does anyone have? I'm going to put Dr. Lasko on the spot who practices in Nampa, and I'm wondering if she can add any um, insights or reflections or questions. Hi, uh, can you hear me? We sure can. Will you remind us who and where you are in your practice setting? Uh, yeah, I'm Barry Lasko. I'm one of the faculty at the Family Medicine Residency of Idaho in Nampa. Uh, I've been here for a year, and I practiced previously in Seattle um, at Swedish. Um, so I think... We, uh, it's been very different coming here. Swedish has a pretty robust um, addiction service specifically for moms. And so the hospital setting is very open um, and not a lot of stigma attached. So I think in the few patients I've had here, moms being on Suboxone, there's definitely lots of um, of kind of discussions with nurses around language and like appropriateness for breastfeeding. Um, and so I think just a lot of patience and teaching 
that needs to still occur. Um, I haven't had this particular issue of like um, having external places want me to stop Suboxone, but again, I haven't had um, a huge number of pregnant folks um, on Suboxone at this time yet. Do you have a go-to um, line to help educate colleagues or family in that regard? You're saying there's opportunities for education. Have you found yeah. something that's especially resonant? Um, I don't know if I have a go-to line because I think it's so, um, it, it just depends on like what's being said. I think a lot of it is around breastfeeding um, and like the safety of of moms breastfeeding when they've been taking buprenorphine. Um, and so kind of just education around like, to see, you know, that it's another opiate. I'm like, oh, like, so when our moms with C-sections are taking pain meds, like, are they, are they allowed to breastfeed? And like, kind of this, like, I like the playing dumb um, technique um, and then, and being like, oh, okay, cool. So like buprenorphine is actually really similar to like, you know, narco or oxy. And so in that sense, like it's safe for them to be breastfeeding because it's a medication that we've prescribed for them, just like if we prescribe narco. Um, and then I think a lot of it, just the slow reminders around language, like I hear a lot of the word like addict. Um, and so just kind of like, oh, you know, so we, we try and use phrases like, you know, opiate use disorder and, you know, in recovery, you know, like mom's in recovery. And so just like gentle nudges um, and then do my like deep breathing before I go on to L&D. <laughs> Thank you for sharing those insights. Stacey, what does this look like over the course of your career? What's working? What's not? What would you add? <laughs> well, it's like our conversation earlier. Resources, resources, resources. Speaking here is Stacy Seib, maternal fetal medicine physician at St. Luke's Health System in Boise and panelist for Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. You know, um... I would say awareness is up some. I think we're seeing a, in our nurses maybe a bit of a changing of the guard and that this younger generation is a little more familiar with, you know, that this is not a total moral failing of a person because they have a substance use issue. Those are probably some of the biggest things, but I still think there are significant biases out there. And I think... Rachel can probably speak to this, but, you know, how we tend to judge others out of our own fears. Um, yeah, no, I, I do. I think you, I mean, just generally speaking. This is Rachel Root speaking here, psychologist at Treasure Valley Psychology in Boise and one of Echo Idaho's perinatal substance use disorder series panelists. You know, they say that how you are treated is more a reflection of the other person than it is you. Um, and so I think that we, it, it is very, very important as providers to take a look at our own biases and they're there. Rest assured, they're there. Um, whether we know them or not, they are there. So it's really important to take that personal inventory every now and again. Um, as a provider in any kind of patient care setting, direct patient care setting, um, that we kind of check our own biases and we allow for that to be challenged and kind of reworked and reframed. Um, it's it's hard to do. It's difficult work. It's um, kind of the basis of therapy in the first place, but I don't think we always have to go to therapy and go through the whole thing just to kind of check our own biases. So I think that's an important reminder, Stacey, um, for everybody. 
Jerry, what would you add? Um, you know, again, like we all say, resources is a big thing. This is Jerry Woodworth. Jerry is an OB and maternal fetal medicine nurse at St. Luke's Support Clinic. She's also one of Echo Idaho's panelists for the Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. I, I do see that when women are no longer pregnant, it's a little bit easier to get them in with um, some providers. As there's a lot of people who don't like to prescribe to pregnant women. So, um, you know, once they deliver, we try to get them in um, with someone. I see a lot of moms who want to discontinue after delivery. You know, they get to that to the delivery and, and through that and say, okay, now I'm ready to discontinue. And I, you know, we do a very good job trying to, um, I feel like we do a good job trying to explain to them that this next couple of months to a year is going to be pretty difficult for you. And, you know, let's just hold off on that for a little while and, and try to get stable um, with everything else in your life. And then you can work on this, on this later. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like Stacey did say, I think we're seeing a lot of change with the um, newer nurses. I do a talk here at St. Luke's quarterly for the nurses, and it seems to me like the newer ones out of school um, have a better understanding of addiction in general and are able to um, kind of set aside some of those judgments a little bit. And one thing I do see, you know, when you're pregnant, you're going to see the doctor pretty frequently. And so then afterwards, you're not going for yourself. So I think engaging the pediatric people is very important as far, especially like with postpartum depression. I know, we, you know, that's kind of a big thing that we are starting to lean on the pediatric portion um, of our team to help us kind of pick out some of those things. I think um, with substance use, too, could be um, a definitely an opportunity to to help us out. Another thing I do with my patients um, to, to prepare them for delivery, I tell them, you know, most of the people that are gonna take care of you are very knowledgeable about substance use, but there's gonna be some that aren't. And if you run across um, any providers or any nurses in your hospital stay that are not very nice to you or seem to be stigmatizing, please let me know. And then I've been able to to have conversations with people and just say, you know, can I provide you with some more um, education about substance use? You know, I don't know if you intended to say this to this patient, but this is how she took it. Maybe we can rephrase um, some of the your standard things that you say to patients to be a little more um, understanding and welcoming to these patients. Um, and then, then on the flip side, I always say, you know, let me know if you have any stellar nurses, and I'm and I definitely let them know and their um, supervisor know that I really appreciate how they cared for my patient when they were in the hospital. I mean, Jerry, I thought you, I think you brought up something that's so important. And, and I guess the answer to this has always kind of uh, evaded me, but what, does anyone have any good um, experience with, you talked about looping in peds, and I just think that is such a crucial component. Um, being in maternal and mental health, um, that's one of the things that like hurts my heart the most is we moms see their doc, they, I mean, see their doctors constantly, 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 and then like once. And that's it. Um, does anyone have anything that has worked or how do we loop in? Because it seems like there's such a huge gap between, you know, obstetrics and peds. How do we bridge that gap? What are people doing that is successful in kind of bringing, you know, these two worlds together? Because we're missing a lot. We're missing a lot with moms and, and, and parents and parenting because they're, they're not being seen. And there, I think there's, there's more, they feel more threatened talking to their 
pediatrician about something that they're struggling with, right? I see a lot of moms who are even more hesitant to bring that to their their child's doctor for fear of, you know, some kind of retaliation. Um, or they're going to take my kids away. Anyway, I don't know if anyone has any brilliant ideas for this, but I just think it's such an area of need. And I oftentimes, uh, um, when patients with substance use come to me and say, you know, I don't have a pediatrician picked out or anything like that, um, a lot of times I'll push family medicine or encourage a family medicine provider, someone that can take care of your family together because this is going to be a family issue. Um, I've been to conferences before where big um, hospital systems have looped together their um, pediatric providers into it and they at you know the each visit with baby they give the mom the EPDS to fill out um, I don't think we're quite there yet at St. Luke's but I think we're moving towards um, a little more screening for um, postpartum depression and things like that but yeah that's definitely it's a hard one but so needed there's a model um, I know in the Portland area they have the Project Nurture, which is uh, multidisciplinary care, really specific to women with substance use disorders. They're sometimes operated out of the OTPs in the community. Um, some of them are partnering with hospital systems, um, so a couple of hospital systems are running these Project Nurtures, and they essentially have a lot of family doctors and some pediatricians and nurse midwives, and also doulas who specialize and a lot of them have lived experience with addiction and recovery. OTP is an opioid treatment program, often like a methadone clinic. So women will come for their substance use disorder treatment, and then they are engaged in groups with other pregnant women, like a whole cohort of pregnant women who often are kind of delivering around the same time. So they get to kind of bond with these other moms. And then they're Substance use disorder treatment is in that same location along with their prenatal care. So they come in, they'll dose their methadone and they'll get their prenatal care that day. So it's a lot of very like low barrier come in. We'll just, you know, do your growth check and, you know, make sure that we're on track with your prenatal care. And then, and then when they deliver, they're followed for the next 12 months as part of Project Nurture. And they see the pediatrician while they're coming into the same location to get their substance use disorder care. So it's all very integrated and has shown really incredible outcomes as well for moms and babies. Not available everywhere, but another model to think about. That again was Allison Smith, addiction medicine physician and family physician and director of mental health at Delta Airlines, presenting postpartum considerations, substance use disorder treatment, recovery, and parenting. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations organizations and services mentioned in that talk are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu slash echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. 
Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. The contributing voices on today's episode were those of Allison Smith, Stacy Seib, Rachel Root, Jerry Woodworth, Lachelle Smith, and Barry Lasko. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Well, you know what that smells. Echo Idaho. Sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo Idaho. You can earn CE credit while you sit.